Welcome to this press conference. Thank you for everybody for coming. It's called by People's COVID Inquiry and it's organised by Keep Our NHS Public. I'm Tony O'Sullivan. I'm the co-chair of Keep Our NHS Public with John Puntis. We planned the inquiry back in November when the deaths in the UK had reached 50,000 already. The second lockdown, lockdown was then lifted, even as the Kent variant was spreading rapidly. And in the face of warnings from scientists, Johnson promised the country freedom at Christmas. He put all his eggs in the vaccine basket and subsequently tens of thousands of deaths followed. The People's COVID inquiry opened on the 24th of February, 2021. And the deaths on that day were 121,747. By today, the official Office of National Statistics figures show that 150,000 deaths have COVID-19 on the death certificate, one of the worst impacts in the world. Six in every 10 of those are disabled people and 47,000 residents of care homes are estimated to have died. Now, in comparison, Vietnam has a population of 95 million and only 0.7% of the population are vaccinated and they've relied on public health measures. Only 90 deaths are recorded from COVID. The UK has a population of 66 million. 51% of the population are double vaccinated, but we have had 150,000 deaths. As we enter the third wave now with the Delta variant, there are indeed lessons to learn. And without doubt, there are lives that can and must be saved. The government declares 19th of July Freedom Day, but it's at the same time predicting 50,000 new cases of the Delta variant daily by then and rapidly rising. And what of long COVID and the impact on children, those that are not vaccinated, those at greatest risk, the risk of vaccine escape. The press reports that Boris Johnson has overruled his scientific advisors to go ahead on Freedom Day. Yesterday, mid-pandemic, the government announced legislation for a major upheaval to the NHS with a new health and care bill. And that will legalize the unregulated contracting behavior that was permitted under emergency coronavirus legislation. Are these the right priorities or are there more important lessons to learn right now about the COVID pandemic? Let's find out. And I hand over now with our thanks to Michael Mansfield QC, who's chair of the People's COVID Inquiry. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Mansfield and I've chaired uh, this inquiry over the months you've just heard about, in fact, since the end of February, so four months of hearing. But before going uh, forward, as it were today, I think that all of us, particularly myself and those on the panel, uh, wish to pay tribute, pay tribute to the people we've heard giving evidence, and it may not be entirely clear, but we've heard a lot of evidence uh, over the nine hearings. There have been something in the region of 39 live witnesses, as well as other evidence that's been tendered. But what we want to do is to pay tribute to the, the ordinary citizens. It's a people's inquiry, and we've been, been impressed by 
ordinary citizens, whether they be part of the bereaved group or whether they be working on the front line for the unremitting selfless commitment and courage that they've made in these circumstances, very, very challenging circumstances, not only for themselves, but actually for their neighbors, for their friends, for their work colleagues. In other words, towards their fellow beings. And that has impressed us beyond measure because the agony and also the injury, particularly to those on the front line, has been severe. But having paid that tribute, I just want to, to move. We, we didn't know when we were having this decision about interim findings, we didn't know that it would coincide with a situation which is again dramatic. And uh, Tony O'Sullivan has described how dramatic it is. And I think everybody is aware, uh, curiously and critically aware of just how important it is at the moment with the events of this week. The NHS is celebrating the anniversary, 73 years. The NHS has been awarded, you know, the George Medal. And yet at the same time, we have one of the worst death rates that's already been referred to. And so we wanted originally to address all this, although not knowing that it would coincide with these figures and these announcements. And the reason we wanted to do it now was in order to indicate the urgency, which doesn't seem to have rested upon the shoulders of government, the urgency of considering right now what is necessary right now and whether lessons have been learned. So that is why. We, we are having, as many inquiries do, interim findings and interim recommendations for action. Now, all of this will be on the website and will be available at the end of the press conference and possibly during the, this press conference as well. So you'll be able to have access to what it is we're saying at this moment. There will be a full report later in the year, possibly early autumn, we'll get it out as quickly as possible, but there is a lot of material to obviously consider. But we thought it important to get these, as it were, published now. And you might say, well, well, how have you decided what to select? Well, we use a phrase that's sometimes used within public inquiries. We've concentrated on what is manifestly obvious, glaringly obvious, that from the evidence that we've heard about the findings we would make on the back of that evidence and the recommendations linked, so as it were, action points for uh, a government and other authorities. And of course, at the end of the day, for the benefit of the ordinary citizen. Now, in order to do that, what we intend to do in a moment is for individual panel members who you will have seen during the various hearings, but this is an opportunity for them uh, to, as it were, present some of our findings. So each panel member in turn will present some of our findings. Uh, and I myself at the end, We'll have a little more to say. But before we get to the findings and the recommendations, it, it may behove you to know that there will be a session or a section of, of our timings, we're keeping close watch on that, for uh, the media particularly to ask questions. So if you would kindly, as it were, note who the panel member is, and if you have a question that you feel pertains to that panel member, when we get to that part of this morning's conference, would you kindly just direct it to that panel member and it'll be quicker and easier to deal with it? it they, you don't have to, but 
it, it would help. So having said that, then we're doing another, uh, as it were, mechanism of public inquiries, and that is counsel to the inquiry, which we've had Lorna Hackett throughout, is going to begin proceedings with a narrative, in a sense, an overview, taken from the point of view of somebody who's pre presenting the evidence and asking the questions. And often counsel to inquiries do assist the panel and the chair with their own observations. So may I, with no more ado, hand over to Lorna Hackett, please. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Uh, good morning, everybody. Can you all see me and hear me? Yes. As counsel to the inquiry, I've had the advantage of asking many of the questions of the witnesses over each of the sessions. Whilst I'm not part of the panel, as you've just heard, um, I'm grateful to them and to the organisers of the People's COVID Inquiry for allowing me to present a thematic overview of the issues that arose during the evidence. We were told that the government ignored the pandemic to begin with, having ignored the recommendations in Exercise Cygnus, which was supposed to ensure our preparedness for a pandemic. The government repeatedly ignored the science, the need for investment in public services, the cries of those working in the NHS in social care and in other crucial services, and, as we've heard, ignored the offers of procurement from those working inside the NHS for PPE. The government was reluctant to put us into lockdown because it was feared that the British public would have lockdown fatigue. By the time this eventually happened on the 23rd of March last year, it was too late for many people. We have a framework of public services which are in place for a purpose. In times of emergency, it makes sense to allow those existing public assets in which the staff are the best place to know what to do to help citizens to be supported to carry out that unprecedented additional work. Instead, the government has chosen at every stage to prefer the private sector and to enter into private contracts instead of supporting existing public services. Private test and trace at a staggering cost of 37 billion pounds has never worked. What about the GP's surgeries all over the country who had been best placed to communicate with their patients, who knew the demographics of the, dem the demographics of their households, their health issues and their language barriers. The relationship between GPs and their patients relies on trust and local knowledge, but doctors have not been trusted to look after their own patients. Private hospitals, the capacity for which was brought up for months at the beginning of the first lockdown, but which at most only treated between one and six or seven COVID patients per day at a staggering cost, which hasn't been disclosed. Private contracts for ventilators, when it is clearly better for those who already make ventilators to be asked to create more of them. Just because you manufacture cars, for example, doesn't mean you can be paid to build a helicopter overnight. And private tutors to help school children to catch up from the disruption to their education caused by COVID rather than giving those resources and that responsibility to their own teachers who arguably know their children more intimately, having seen inside their homes during remote Zoom classes, have been overlooked. People trusted that whilst they stayed at home, taxpayers' money and whatever other sums needed to be borrowed to solve the situation, which we all know we will be paying for for many years to come, would be used to help those in need 
not lining the pockets of friends of the government. Those most obviously in need were NHS staff, key workers, teachers and others, all of whom needed support to be able to navigate this crisis. The government pushed past them, ignoring their skills and their competence, and shoved fistfuls of cash into the hands of third parties. It's insulting, it's ignorant, and it is completely inadequate. The public trusted the government to do the right thing in respect of our health, public services, and our public service infrastructure. It is now time for the government to do the right thing. Despite the vast sums of money spent over the last 16 months, the public services on which we all rely are still deeply wounded by 11 years of austerity. The effects of austerity have had a devastating impact on many people, but disproportionately so on the disabled, on black, Asian and minority ethnic groups and on low-income families. The reversal of austerity and shoring up of public services with proper remuneration for nursing and other staff has to be addressed without any further delay. Thank you. Now I'm going to pass you back to the chair of the panel, Mr. Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lorna Hackett. May I thank you for the work during the inquiry itself. I now want to turn, if I may, to uh, Dr. Talula Oni, who is the urban, an urban epidemiologist and public health physician at the Medical Research Council Epidemiology Unit, the University of Cambridge to present our first set of, of findings and recommendations. Dr. Oni. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. I'll be focusing on public health policy, building on, on what we heard from the council. Over the course of the inquiry, we had three cross-cutting emerging sub-themes from witnesses, which were a lack of preparedness, poor population health resilience going into the pandemic, and inconsistent public health policies and messaging as part of the response strategy. So taking each of these in turn, firstly, with respect to the lack of preparedness, we heard from witnesses that despite being warned years earlier of the likelihood of a pandemic by the year 2030, and despite inadequacies identified from the exercise signals, there was a failure to adequately prepare for this eventuality. Secondly, at the start of the inquiry, we heard about a lost decade in terms of public, the public's um, health, where inequalities in key determinants of health, such as housing and employment, that were identified in 2010 were ignored and ensuing public cuts drove widening inequalities 10 years later. The poor health record coming into the pandemic due to social and economic inequalities and disinvestment in the public sector, coupled with a hollowed out public health system, have made it significantly more challenging to build the community resilience needed to address this, these inequities. And in the context of the pandemic, inequity played out as inequalities in exposure risk, uh, particularly with the public facing employment, with respect to vulnerabilities and existing comorbidities, with respect to access to contextually tailored information, and in the consequences of ill health and indeed of the lockdown measures. The ensuing impact on the poor, the disabled, minority ethnic groups and women reflect social and racial inequalities, uh, prejudice and economic disadvantage, and these are strongly linked to living conditions, particularly in cities. Thirdly, 
Witnesses spoke to inconsistent, ill-prepared and miscommunicated public health policies and messaging that ignored basic public health principles for outbreak control. For example, we heard about delays in recognizing the gravity of the situation and failure to implement an early lockdown that could have saved 35,000 lives in the first wave, as well as delays and outright refusals to implement World Health Organization recommended measures, non-implementation of which still persists to, to, to today, particularly around community testing, contact tracing, masking in indoor settings and ventilation to reduce the risk of aerosol transmission. Witnesses also spoke to miscommunication that falsely pitted health against the economy or implied that the only options uh, to control uh, infection and high rates of transmission were either lockdown or no measures at all. And And messaging that treated the public as part of the problem with a failure to trust the public with respect to the necessary public health measures that would be needed to avoid repeated national lockdowns. Of note, witnesses from bereaved families also spoke to the disrespect and arrogance that prevented the government from meeting with them. We know that vaccines are both highly effective and part of a broader suite of measures to reduce exposure and maximally suppress local community transmission to enable localized outbreaks to be quashed early and avoid repeated national lockdowns. Witnesses spoke to the UK reliance on a single strategy of vaccines and the vaccine nationalism that goes with this is undermining an effective pandemic policy, both in the UK and internationally, and creating conducive environments for the emergence and spread of new variants. Witnesses also spoke to the false dichotomies presented that positioned options, as I mentioned, as either lockdown or measures, or no measures at all, ignoring the evidence on mitigation measures that need to be in place to keep transmissions down and that lockdowns in effect represent a failure of control measures. So to to this end, our recommendations on this theme are threefold. Firstly, that established public health measures supported by the World Health Organization and known to be effective in lowering everyday risks be urgently implemented in the UK. And these include effective find, test, trace, isolate services with economic support for isolation and quarantine. They include strengthening and supporting local public health and local authorities to effectively lead this effort in liaison with an effective national public health system. It includes effective protection against aerosol transmission by the wearing of masks and sensible uh, social distancing in closed, crowded and closed contact spaces. And the employment of strict border measures that both reduce the risk of exporting cases globally and importing new cases and variants. The second uh, recommendation relates to policies that needed to urgently address social and health inequality investing in recovery that tackles the root causes of health inequalities, including poor quality housing and food insecurity. Now, we know from public health experience in say, healthy eating, that an over-reliance on individual level responsibility is both misinformed and ineffective, and that supportive environments are critical. And so we would recommend providing and regulating guidelines to ensure adequate ventilation in enclosed spaces, notably in schools and workspaces, work 
and integrating health considerations into future housing and urban development with healthy housing and equitable access to public spaces that are necessary for safe physical activity, be that for travel or leisure, in order to build that future resilience. And lastly, we recommend that the UK ends vaccine nationalism and fulfills its international obligations to prevent the spread of disease by ensuring global distribution of vaccines and support for intellectual property waivers, for technology transfer and the building of manufacturing capacity globally. Thank you, I'll hand back to the chair. Uh, thank you, Dr. Only very much. We now pass to the second panel member, Professor Nina Modi, who is Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London for her set of findings and recommendations. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much, Ms. Mansfield. Good morning, everyone. Um, I have three findings, three principal interim findings to report and two recommendations to, to put to you. You will all remember the mantra, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. The first finding uh, that I'd like to draw to your attention is that the NHS needed protecting because it went into the pandemic weakened, fragmented and a shadow of its former self. And I will come back to this point in a moment. Second finding is that the presentation of pandemic measures as a choice between the economy and the health of the population was misguided and wrong, and it caused immense harm. A healthy economy depends on a healthy population. These are not opposing goals, they are complementary. Third finding is that the most disadvantaged fared worse because there's been a failure to recognize that healthcare, in other words, the NHS, is actually the minor contributor to the health of the nation. The major contributors are what is known as the wider and early life determinants of health. These are reflected in the objective measures of social, economic, educational inequalities, and they of course explain the disproportionate effect of the pandemic on some communities. So a bit more detail now. The NHS need not have been so weakened. We need not have gone into the pandemic in such a crippled state. The inquiry heard how government policy um, had imposed savage reductions on the NHS, on primary care, on social care, and as you've already heard, on public health for over a decade in the name of austerity. This led to the very, very weakened position we found ourselves in, in no fit state to cope even with the workload of normal times, let alone a pandemic. At the outset, at the start of the pandemic, you'll recall there was a shortfall of 100,000 NHS staff and we had one of the lowest intensive care bed to population ratios in Europe. To add insult to injury, uh, the pandemic, as you know, had been anticipated in the exercise sickness, but its recommendations had been comprehensively ignored. It's no wonder, therefore, that the slogan was adopted, protect the NHS. But tragically, let's remind ourselves that the NHS is here to protect the people. And yet it was the people who protected, who were forced to protect the NHS and their fellow citizens, and many of them paid for this with their lives. The inquiry heard, for example, from Lobby Akinola, whose previously healthy father died at home from COVID without ever once speaking to or ever once be seen by a healthcare professional. This was because he and his family followed government advice, which was to only call NHS 111 and not to call a doctor. NHS 11 is a triage service. It is not staffed by healthcare professionals. 
had Lobby's father been seen by a doctor, had he been admitted to hospital, it is very likely that he would have been alive today. This is the very, very cruel and real example of the people protecting the NHS instead of the NHS being able to protect the people. There's been very high praise for the NHS, deservedly so, because the NHS did carry us through this. But of course, this rings hollow, given that the NHS is being systematically undermined by a growing parallel healthcare sector. This is, of course, the private healthcare sector, which is being prioritised over the public sector. The, um, the, the, this progressively erodes public healthcare because, of course, private healthcare cherry picks the easy cases, the worried well. It does not provide care to those with complex long-term conditions. It does not provide training. And simultaneously, the ability of the NHS to do just that is being eroded because of a continued squeeze on public funding. Captain Tom, the centenarian who we all applauded as he walked his garden again and again and again to raise £39 million for the NHS, would have been appalled to have realised that £39 billion alone have been wasted on a failed test and track, uh, trace system. These actions have left public health services even weaker, even less prepared to face the next round of challenges. Meanwhile, presenting the economy and health in opposition, as exemplified by the Eat Out to Help Out campaign, of course, um, really exacerbates the situation we find ourselves in. And of course, it's also being played out, for example, by the um, failing to take into account, failing to curb junk, junk food industries, therefore failing to curb the obesity epidemic, which is a major cause of the poor population health and disproportionate impact of COVID on many communities. So to finish, the first recommendation arising out of these findings is that the pandemic provides both rationale and opportunity to invest in the NHS and a public, public health care um, and health and care service that could once again be the envy of the world. The UK did this in 1948, even though financially crippled by World War II, and we can do it again and lead the world again in providing a fair, equitable, efficient, cost-effective health care for all service. But this investment should not just include the NHS, but also the workforce, primary care, diagnostic labs, social care, and of course, public health. We are not dismissing the private sector and the important role that it can play, but to promote it in favour of the public service and the public sector does the nation a huge disservice and weakens us for the future. And finally, the second recommendation is that we really do need to target improvements in population health as a central pillar of UK economic strategy. This calls for a health in all policies approach and a health impact assessment on all decisions, regulations, policies and legislation. Unless and until the health of the population is recognised as a cardinal component of the nation's resilience and economic likelihood of success, the UK will remain vulnerable to future infections and indeed to non-infectious health threats as well. Thank you very much. Mr Mansfield, over to you. Thank you, Professor. And now lastly of the panellists in, in, in any event is Dr Jackie Davis, uh, who is a national health uh, consultant radiologist. She's also an author, as well as being a member of the BMA Council, although I think she wishes to make it clear she's here in a personal capacity. So, uh, Dr. Davis, please. Thank you, and, and hello, everybody. 
Um, the trouble with coming last, of course, is that everybody's stolen my lines, but I'm just going to press on anyway, um, because I don't think it's surprising. I've been asked today to talk about the problems that came out of the inquiry involving the NHS and staff and around social care. And we've already heard my uh, co-panel members talk about the state that the NHS was in when the pandemic arrived. And it really is um, such an important issue. I'm just going to repeat some of the facts. Um, we had fewer doctors, we had fewer nurses per capita, we had fewer hospital beds, in particular ITU beds, and we were spending less money on the NHS than comparable systems. And as Professor Melia said, the NHS was estimated to be 100,000 staff short at the beginning of 2019, and the shortfall for social care was 120,000. So the NHS had gone from winter crises to all-year-round crises, and then the pandemic struck. So it was no surprised that both the NHS and its staff um, were reeling under this. In addition, as we've also heard, the service was poorly prepared as far as specific resources were concerned. The government had ignored its own um, exercise about pandemic pre preparedness, Cygnus, and the NHS faced the pandemic without enough items such as personal protective equipment and ventilators, and this had severe repercussions for the safety of staff and patients. The existing staff shortages, which led to such difficulties, were exacerbated by an early lack of testing for staff, which meant that many had to self-isolate after they came into contact with COVID, who may not have been positive. And all of these factors came together to mean that staff worked long hours in potentially dangerous conditions. And staff, especially those from the Black, uh, um, Asian and minority ethnic community, felt very vulnerable um, we heard from witnesses that there was a steep decline in staff morale during the second wave, which many felt should have been foreseen and prevented, and which was exacerbated by the eat out to help out policy. We heard from staff that they suffered both burnout and what the inquiry came to understand as moral injury. The two are actually different, and it's important to understand the difference because moral injury is so important. Burnout arises from working long hours in difficult conditions and was clearly a serious problem for many on the front line. Moral injury arose when staff trained to work to a high standard found that due to circumstances beyond their control, they could not work to those standards. They felt guilt and frustration that they had the responsibility but no power to improve their working conditions that were unsafe for patients as well as themselves. We heard, for instance, from um, an A&E consultant that the staff were having to change in a kitchenette um, during the pandemic. You know, how, how frustrating and dangerous is that um, for the staff and the patients? As has been mentioned, staff were upset by the lack of central guidance, which changed frequently. And when it eventually came, the mixed messaging was very confusing for them and patients, and they found themselves having to change their advice to patients, which made them feel foolish. Staff were also concerned about the money spent on outsourcing, outsourcing work to the private sector, sometimes with spectacular non-results, such as with test and trace. We heard from a number of staff that there was very little in the way of risk assessment, which people are obliged to do in the early stages of a pandemic like this, particularly in the early stages. And there was little or no attempt to support the mental health of staff, especially juniors, many of whom were plunged into very difficult working conditions day in, day out. Somebody said, they saw things that they should never have seen and were offered no support. As a result, we've heard that many are talking about leaving the NHS and social care, which of course hasn't been helped by the 1% pay offer. 
The pandemic spawned, shone a very bright spotlight on the shortcomings of social care. We still haven't seen the oven ready plan which Boris Johnson promised when he first came to power. Instead, we heard that the elderly, those with disabilities, mental health problems, learning problems, died at several times the rate of the general population because their support structures were already poor and became worse or non-existent during the pandemic. And this was not the fault of the staff who worked with them, but, but lack of any central guidance about how to deal with this. So our recommendation for this aspect of the inquiry is firstly, that the NHS is in urgent need of proper investment. It needs appropriate funding, not only to continue dealing with a pandemic, which is clearly going to go on being a problem after this you know, really, uh, uh, Freedom Day on July the 19th, but to catch up with a back backlog of non-COVID work, which couldn't be done during the pandemic, as the NHS was not resourced or staffed to deal with both. The government must commit to this. They must commit to supporting staff, many of whom are deeply traumatised at this stage. And there are things they could do quickly, such as adequate staffing levels and proper remuneration. But of course, the government needs to tackle the long-running problems around social care. We need to understand why the vulnerable in society did so very badly and improve the public services that should have supported them. As one witness said, with reference to the shocking death rate among the elderly in care homes, who died at three times the rate of the elderly in the community, this shouldn't have happened, it needn't have happened, and it must never happen again. And I think we all felt amen to that on so many fronts in this inquiry. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Davis. Um, we're coming near to the end of uh, what we want to present to you, but I have a few observations to make uh, having sat through this inquiry. And as many of you know, I've sat through many other inquiries, uh, people's inquiries, citizens' inquiries, as well as judicial inquiries. It won't surprise you really, having heard the catalogue of findings this morning and the recommendations, that the, the final finding that I want to make clear on behalf of the panel to everyone is that if you combine all these matters that have been raised, none of which I'm going to repeat uh, because of the shortage of time, but if you combine all of those and then you reflect for a moment, there are themes that are extremely important, principles that are being neglected, principles that are being overlooked, principles that are being basically rejected, that come from all of these issues that have been raised. Now, the principles are these, and, and they won't be new to those of you in the media because they've arisen in other contexts as well. First of all, what is missing from all of this is the duty of candor. The duty of candor and transparency, which is missing. And we heard that a lot in the inquiry from both ordinary citizens as well as professionals that the, uh, those responsible for the handling the pandemic have not satisfied those responsibilities. So that's the first thing, the duty of candor and transparency, because it leads to truth. And that is what people want. They want to know the truth about what has happened and what has gone wrong and what is going to happen. Because I hope I don't speak too much out of turn, but I think the public faith in the integrity of what is being said on our behalf is no longer taken for granted or accepted. So that's the first stage. Second stage principle that seems to have been put by the wayside is a question of accepting responsibility and most importantly, accountability. 
That is what the public wants, and that is what the public is not getting here. Another principle that has been cast aside. And in a sense, this is rather crucial because it links to the rule of law. Respect for the rule of law. Now, we've heard within the confines of our inquiry, the evidence that we've heard, as well as looking outside and taking judicial notice of what is going on, that there is little or no respect at the end of the day for the, for the public, but more particularly for the rule of law. And the most obvious examples are personal ones, which we've seen very recently, that the ministers who make the rules break them. For how much longer should this be tolerated? They, we have accountability, or we should have, with our international obligations with the World Health Organization. We have obligations under Articles 2, 3, and 5, and 8 in relation to uh, treatment of people and, and also, uh, of course, protecting life. And there's an additional Article 2 responsibility, that is to investigate. That isn't happening at the moment with inquests related to COVID. Where is it happening? In other words, the actual link between how this came about and the death rate and the deaths that have been occasioned. So there's no respect, uh, effectively, we say, or very little, for the rule of law. And perhaps the classic example that I can give here is in relation to a number of judicial reviews that have been taken in relation to unlawful activities. Uh, in the first case by, won't surprise you, uh, Mr. Hancock, and in the second case, by Mr. Gove, but there are a number of others. And when they are caught, as it were, not just on camera, but when they're caught, the immediate response is to brush it off, to say, oh, I was a bit late with the paperwork, or um, uh, Mr. Johnson, the Prime Minister's response on the recent events, well, I did appoint another minister rather quickly. There is no acceptance of responsibility. There is no accountability. It is a disregard for the public. Not just does he not visit, as you've heard, uh, people from the uh, bereaved who we've heard from, uh, and they find that uh, not just upsetting, but an insult to be treated in that way. So effectively, these themes which underlie all those matters that have been raised this morning give rise to one very obvious finding. And I don't think anybody could find difficulty with uh, accepting prima facie, we have in government, ministers responsible for handling the pandemic are unfit for purpose. So what is our recommendation in these circumstances? We have a clear recommendation and that is one that is now called for overwhelmingly uh, by uh, a member of the senior judiciary recently, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Institute of Government, and a large number of other professional and non-professional organizations. And that is for a public, independent judicial inquiry now, which has greater powers than we had. Everybody concerned with this inquiry has done so voluntarily. Uh, from start to finish. Uh, and that's been, and of course we invited the government. <laughs> they ignore us like they ignore everybody else. They don't come. So we say this 
public inquiry can happen now. First point, this has happened before. They could do it. They could do it. It happened in Hillsborough. I'll deal with it very quickly indeed. Everybody knows about Hillsborough. Within a day or so, a judge was appointed. Uh, uh, um, Peter Taylor was appointed to have a first phase inquiry. He held that inquiry within a month, completed within a month, with recommendations for football safety, of which football's on everybody's mind, I'm sure, at the moment. Football safety at the moment. Started straight away. And what are we doing here? We have a prime minister who last July said, oh, yes, yes, I think there is a need for a public inquiry. And what did he do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Until he was reminded this year by the bereaved who we've heard from. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> it's not time yet. In other words, he's going to determine when it's when he's ready uh, and when they can only surmise the obvious reasons as to why he's not quite ready yet. And then when the pressure is it, it, it becomes too great, he said, oh, well, yes, 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 yes. We'll, we'll have one next year. Well, I think many of us doubt very much whether one can trust that there will be one next year. We have rung, we have contacted the Cabinet Office uh, for an answer on this, uh, both before today and today. We as taxpayers are owed an explanation as to what's going on. Because if you're going to have a public next year even if it happens next year you've got to found a judge found a venue found a, a network of support and logistics to go with it you've got to deal with disclosure all those things that go with a normal judicial inquiry they take time to set up and they take unless you're going to do it very quickly and you have it in mind he's had since last july and so now what we're being told is he's consulting some sort of other international organizations we don't know what so nobody knows what's going on. And I venture to suggest, and I hope today, perhaps the Prime Minister would like to come out of the woodwork and say what he is doing. Because at the moment, it appears to be nothing. So our recommendation here is for a full, independent judicial inquiry, which should have been prepared for before today, but can, even if it's a bit late now, it'd be better late, better now than never that they engage with uh, organizing such a, uh, the objective being such an inquiry, two objectives. First of all, the objective to restore public confidence in the rule of law, in accountability, in transparency, in the duty of candor. So restore the principles which have got lost in this whole process of the pandemic, which has been used as a panacea for all sorts of other ills. So it would do that, one hopes. And secondly, of course, now examine public health policy, which you've heard a lot about this morning, and the ways in which other jurisdictions have handled public health without the necessity of complete lockdowns, without the necessity of knee-jerk reactions, without the necessity of, as it were, worrying about whether uh, the economy is going to survive because it has in those other jurisdictions. So we say, that needs examination now, or are we going to go on just accepting what uh, the Prime Minister, off the cuff often, decides on the spur of the moment, it's date, not data. So those are, that's the, uh, an overall finding and an overall recommendation. Uh, and we, we suggest that that's a matter that can be uh, implemented fairly quickly. Now, I want to come, as I'm, I'm looking at the time, we have time for some questions. So uh, would you be kind enough to indicate who you are, 
what you are, who you work for, or if you do work for an organization, your name. And also if you could raise your hand and then we will put you on screen and perhaps the question you have to ask could be directed to a panel member or just a general one. Thank you. Michael, could I just interject to say, could the media please use the raise hand function and then our team will know who wants to speak and we'll select the next person for you. Can I just interpose? Because I understand there have been some questions sent in in advance. If there is a, um, a hiatus at the moment, we could answer one of the prepared questions. I haven't seen them, but uh, if that's possible, we could fill. I, I We've could got read, another 15 minutes left. I could read one of them out for you. Yes, certainly. Um, why are... Sorry, what is the panel's take on the government's suggestion that restrictions will be significantly eased next week? And that is by Adrian Goldberg from Byline Times podcast. Um, well, I, I think it's, uh, uh, if I may just lead the way, but I, I think that other panel members will have quite a bit to say on, on this particular topic. I think, in a sense, our, our general position has been a very loquaciously and articulately summed up, in fact, in The Guardian today, by one of the witnesses we had in the last se session, who's an epidemiologist, Adept Gurdasani, uh, and his heading for the article is Ditching England's COVID restrictions is a dangerous experiment because it's putting lives at risk. And we have said through the public health measures um, that Dr. Oni very carefully went through that we should have public measures we should have had a consistent policy from the beginning and should have been better prepared so that it could have been implemented in which we suppress the virus uh, to the extent of eliminating its, its its occurrence although you can't eradicate it eliminate it which is what uh, other countries in southeast asia and australasia have done so it we we find that, that, that at this stage, with the surging numbers, uh, are, are predicted at 100,000 a day, that is just under a million every two weeks. And we haven't vaccinated the whole population anyway. And the reliance on, on the vaccination uh, policy is it's obviously a factor, but it, its reliance is becoming ridiculous. It, and obviously, it, it's a breeding ground. I think some people have called it a factory for the development of a variant We've already had the alpha, now we've got delta, and now we've got delta plus. Well, in these circumstances, these very circumstances, we are liable to have more surges, more spikes, uh, and uh, uh, problems over the winter period. Uh, and we would, I think, well, certainly my interpretation of our findings and what we've heard through uh, this, this particular witness as well that I've just mentioned is that th this is irresponsible and should not be happening in this way. Can I, is there any other panel members would, would like to come in on this one? Yes, please, uh, Dr. Jackie Davis. Thank you. Um, I think there's a, a really important point too about um, the effects of long COVID that um, are just becoming apparent and particularly in young people 
So the, the public health people who know about this are saying that, you know, it may be that, um, that 10% of young people will go on to get long COVID that will really last for an, a significant time and have a very serious effect on them. So by going for what looks like a sort of hybrid herd immunity, which was in fact what this government went for in the first place and then was slapped down, um, they, are, they are conducting a very, very dangerous experiment here. Um, and it may be that it has, you know, it will cause concern about the future of young people and their education, but it may be that it has serious repercussions on their health going forward. And, it, and that seems like a very dangerous thing to do when it could be stopped by something as minimal as wearing a mask and, and, and a degree of social distancing indoors. And, and I just finished by saying that one of our witnesses was a public health professor from New Zealand who said where they have also had, you know, figures for Vietnam were, were quoted, but they've had huge success in, in, in New Zealand with a number of deaths. I think it was in the 20s last time. Um, that that uh, by sticking to basic public health measures, you can control the virus. Um, and the government has put all its eggs in the vaccine basket, and it just is a um, very criminally dangerous thing to do, I'm afraid. Uh, two, yeah, I can't, uh, uh, sorry, uh, I'll come back to Dr. Only one second. Just two follow-up matters of uh, information. One is that the figures that Dr. Gurdasani put on long COVID sufferers is in the region of a million already. So it's a huge number. Secondly, the witness we heard from New Zealand, in case those want to follow it up, was Professor Michael Baker. So can I come back to, sorry to interrupt, Dr. Ernie, please. Thank you, Ms. Mansfield. I just want to, building on Dr. Davis's point, um, highlight three reasons um, why uh, the current uh, approach is not a good idea. Um, firstly, and that's what uh, Dr. Davis has spoken to, it trivializes the impact of mass mass um, infections. We've heard about uh, long COVID, but also in the context of what I presented uh, from the witnesses earlier around inequity, we know that the distribution of infections is also not equal across the country. So, and we know the consequences of ill health is not equally distributed. So by trivializing mass um, infections, not only are we dismissing the impacts of long COVID, but we're neglecting the fact that uh, that could widen, further widen the health inequalities that we're already seeing, uh, play, we've already seen play out in the last year. Uh, the second reason why this isn't a good idea is that it also trivializes the impact on the healthcare workers. And we've heard both from Professor uh, Modi and um, and, uh, and Dr. Davis about the state of the healthcare um, and, and the workforce at the moment. So whilst the vaccines have sh been shown to really weaken that link with, with, with deaths, we're still seeing if you have a higher even if you have a lower percentage of hospitalizations, a lower percentage of a huge number is a huge number. Um, so if we have a huge number of, of, of cases, we increase the number of hospitalizations, putting further pressure on the NHS uh, with the workforce that is already exhausted. And then the third reason is that it trivializes the impact globally. So we've, we've talked about um, high rates of transmission, increasing the risk of emergence of, of, of new variants. We have to recognize our global responsibility. We already see at the moment, whilst the Delta variant is causing a high um, increased cases here, but we have 50% um, of the 
population doubly vaccinated, so we're not seeing as many deaths or hospitalizations. We're seeing globally across the world that is that a different reality with increase in deaths and hospitalizations, healthcare systems running out of oxygen, etc. So a responsibility globally as well that if we are setting up a situation with uh, that increases the risk of emergence of new uh, vari variants that places others at risk, particularly where um, the va vaccines are not equitably uh, available and distributed. So it's really important that we're thinking about this both locally and, and globally. And just a, a further point of information on, on um, what the doctor has just said, and namely, we do, when we heard from a public law expert witness in the last session, that we do have responsibilities internationally, the no harm principle, uh, basically governed by the World Health Organization. And we are clearly in breach of obligations within that framework. So it's yet another area of accountability and responsibility that has not really been uh, afforded or respected. So, um, I don't know whether Professor Nina Modi wants to add anything or not. No, not on this. Is there? Is there? A, um, we have a few more minutes. If there's any other, can I read out another question? Yeah. Please. I'm going to combine two questions because they do overlap. Um, John Hebden from Bradford Community Broadcasting um, Radio Outlet in Bradford asks: Is it wise to end compulsory face mask wearing in shops or on public transport? And then a related question, in, in my mind at least, Lisa Chain uh, from Medical Legal magazine asks, why are easy measures such as ventilation and mask wearing not being applied in schools uh, with the vulnerable and long COVID issues ongoing? So would the panel like to... Yes, I'll, I'll just kick it off, but I'm sure panel members would want to come in on this because we, we again, we heard evidence about this, namely the importance of mask, well, it's the importance of recognising aerosol transmission. And in order to, as it were, circumvent aerosol transmission, there are obvious measures, easy measures that you can take. A lot of people are quite happy to do it. In other words, mask wearing. And, uh, and I think if I can just come in on, on, on this, as well as ventilation of premises and so on, it is one of the things about the, the, the Prime Minister's announcement, if you think carefully about what he's saying, he's saying basically responsibility is now going to be passed to you for my health. So you have a choice as to whether you're going to let me survive this or not. Now, as people can see, I'm of a certain age, so I'm certainly, thank you very much, in a vulnerable category. I don't want to walk the streets, depending on other people, to in fact respect health. It's a way of passing the buck because he feels, no doubt, as a lot of us do, fed up with restrictions and fed up with it all. But nevertheless, health has to come first. Anyway, it's just an observation on the, the, the political approach to this, which has been, uh, I think, as far as I'm concerned, not a happy one. Is any other panel member wanting to... Yes, Dr. Davis. Just unmute myself, thank you. First of all, the, the public, we know the public want the, the, the face masks to continue to be, to be worn. Um, secondly, this business of putting all your eggs in the vaccine basket is that we all as doctors know people who can't have a vaccine. 
or who have been um, self-isolating for nearly a year and a half now because the vaccine doesn't work for them, particularly, for instance, people with blood cancer. So what is going to happen to those people? I mean, we're just throwing them to the wolves, really. Um, and I've just seen a message from a public health person saying there will be no point in trying to deal with test and trace and, and the public health measures around COVID if this goes ahead with abandoning everything, because we simply will not be able to cope with 100,000 cases a day. And we might as well go away and do something else that's a bit more useful. So that's that's the feeling of some public health people is that the system will be just overwhelmed. And this will rip, which was what they tried to do in the first place. And will with the consequences, as we've mentioned, for particularly young people and those who can't, who the vaccine can't help. Thank you. Oh, yeah, Professor, yes, do. Thank you very much. I'd just uh, like to, to thank the, the questioner for, for raising that point and remind everyone that, of course, this um, uh, tactic of actually passing responsibility to the public is one that we have seen many times before. We've seen it, for example, in relation to the obesity epidemic, where there was um, what can only be described as an insistence on personal responsibility rather than any attempt at central responsibility. So it is a familiar pattern, but as my colleagues have said, it is one that is um, both indicative of a failure of leadership and indicative of a failure to take central responsibility. There are many segments of society um, who are unable to make these choices for themselves. And where the leadership and central responsibility comes in is providing clear advice. So it would have been, and you will hear increasingly calls from many, many quarters in the next days, um, you will hear a, a plea to government to issue central advice about the wearing of masks and not relegate this to individual decision-making. I'm sorry that we find ourselves in this position. Michael, I... I yeah, sorry, there's one, uh, Doctor only wants to say a little bit on this too. Sorry. Thanks, just building on that last point, um, it's... If we reflect on historical experiences, um, say in the Victorian times around outbreaks, there have been opportunities taken. So the sewage system um, that we have today uh, is, is as a result of Im improvements that were driven by outbreaks that we that that were that were um, that came about. Say outbreaks in infectious diseases like cholera, etc., in London um, in those in that time. So it would be the equivalent of at that time thinking, okay, we need better sewage management. Well, once this outbreak is over, we can go back to to suboptimal. <laughs> suboptimal practices, which it, is it's unfathomable. So we've talked before about um, the, the the resilience that we had or lack thereof coming into this pandemic. Uh, we know, say that um, ventilation was already inadequate in spaces. We heard from one of the um, one of the witnesses talked about uh, focus on education and the poor thermal thermal discomfort and poor insulation and poor ventilation in schools we already know is associated with poor ability to learn um, as well as um, as well as uh, poor ventilation so it impacts both health inequalities and and educational inequalities so it's really unfathomable that we are not thinking about this opportunity to say what are the things that were not 
optimal coming into this pandemic? And how do we actually build our resilience? And the most obvious way is looking at ventilation in, in workplaces and in schools to say, how can we use this opportunity to improve uh, the ventilation so that we can address those, those, those inequalities? So, so that for me is something that is, is entirely unfathomable because we can see the benefits, not just for this pandemic, but for any future, um, future pandemics, as well as, as I said, educational educational gaps that we're already seeing widening. Could we, could we ask Richard Hurley next, Michael? Richard Hurley works for BMJ, British Medical Journal. Yes, Andy. Hi, um, thank you. Thank you to the panel. Thank you to the chair. Um, I, I heard or I understood, I think, from what you were saying, Mr. Mansfield, that, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the panel um, assessed that uh, the government's not um, following the rule of law, has little respect for the rule of law, um, and also that we may be in breach of legal responsibilities, for example, to investigate uh, uh, the cause of the pandemic or the deaths and uh, WHO um, responsibilities. What mechanisms are there then um, if if we're failing in our international or uh, you know obligations? What what can be done if laws are being broken? Well, I think this is a, broken. Yes, it, it's a it's a very good question. We have grappled with this. Well, certainly as a lawyer. And Lorna Hackett, as a lawyer, we do have to grapple with this all the time. Uh, I'm going to make a number of points. First of all, obviously, with at the international level, it would be for a an, an, a state to complain about uh, an individual could do it, or a group could, or an NGO could. Is to, is, is for complaints to be registered with the World Health Organization that we're in breach of our obligation to protect. Uh, globally, which, which uh, I say we're in breach of. In terms of domestic legislation, there's Article 2 is the basic one, where there should be, there's an obligation to investigate. Now, the obligation can be carried out in a number of ways, but it isn't being carried out in any ways at the moment. That is why we're saying, for the moment, a judicial inquiry set up tomorrow would begin the process of satisfying the need to investigate. Now, another mechanism that can be used and has been used is to judicially review uh, in the courts decisions taken uh, by this government, not policy decisions, but decisions uh, concerning, uh, well, it, it happens to be what we've called uh, cronyism and procurement, that there has been a non-tendering, non-competition, non-advertising position. They've been found in breach of that, but the problem is that you know, it's a judicial review, and, and unless government has respect for that, then the only other way of dealing with this is, is obviously for those responsible to uh, leave office. Now, one has just done so, but it, it's bigger than that because it really comes back to a democratic deficit. That's what I've called it. In other words, I think we're all aware at the moment, the ability to challenge politically is extremely difficult within the context of the Houses of Parliament because we have a situation in which the government have a huge majority and they feel they can steamroller these matters. So there are mechanisms. And of course, finally, the other mechanism is where somebody has died and it can be linked to gross negligence. 
there are forms of criminal offence that may have been occasioned. Now, again, as far as I'm aware, somebody is already considering that. So there are mechanisms, but I'm afraid they are difficult. And of course, under the present circumstances where public funding has been seriously curtailed, up to 40% in relation to um, public law matters, if you're going to take a judicial review, you're not going to be publicly funded. So basically, uh, we, we have an impoverished situation in terms of holding a government to account. And the only way at the end of the day is obviously that that government uh, should be seen for what it is in terms of the rule of law. Dr. Oni would like to say something. Yes, there was there was an additional point I meant to make in the previous question um, that I, I forgot to, but actually relates also to this 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 point that was just raised now in terms of legal obligations and accountability, which is that thinking about it's important to think about the response now and going forwards in the context not just of this pandemic but not even just in the context of a pandemic itself but thinking about the potential for future global societal disruptions going forwards um, the example from the previous question was around why didn't we use this opportunity to to improve ventilation we know that with with climate change we will have extreme extreme weather extreme heat we see that playing out in north america at the moment this this is a similar range of interventions that will deal with extreme heat that will deal with transmission of um, aerosol transmission and increased ventilation quite why we wouldn't then take the opportunity to both future proof ourselves from uh transmission of infectious diseases but also make us more uh climate uh proof is it doesn't make sense because we, we we know that this is coming. So that it's just in think, and that also relates to individual versus um, center responsibility. We know with the with with climate change, it's not going to be up to individuals to to do, to do what they want. Right? We're going to have to need to to have these regulations in place, and there's going to be have to be legal um, accountability. And we see that with the COP26, and we see that with the Paris agreements around that. So. Thinking about this is all part of the same continuum of global um, emergencies and no, no borders. We really have to think differently about our approach uh, to to addressing these in a in a in a systems and future proof way. Uh, Dr. Davis, yes, yeah, sorry. Thanks. I just make another point in response to Richard which is one of the things that came up in the inquiry from, um, from the um, secretary of the GMB union, is that the unions are starting to press for COVID to be recognized as an industrial disease, um, and whether there should be compensation for the families of people who died on the front line, for instance, because other people have not had the huge number of deaths of, of um, health workers that we have. And so should, should it's back to this question of responsibility again, the government should be held responsible for that. And people should just not be left. You know, people have been orphaned by this. Should not just be, you know, cast off. There should be a recognition that that uh, people should not have caught uh, COVID as a result as a result of in industrial exposure at work. Um, and we also heard about how these numbers have been unre unreported and how they've been under investigated from a professor of occupational medicine. So there's a huge area there to look at about the responsibility of this government towards its employees, how it was failed, and how those people or their survivors are compensated. Thank you. And a footnote to that is that 
Health and Safety at Work Act would come into play here. Are there any other, uh, I'm just asking generally, because obviously I don't know directly whether there are any more queries, questions from anyone watching or anyone who sent in an advance? If, if there's time, Michael, there was one other question. Well, may I just ask the fellow panelists, because I think we've all got other commitments, but, and Lorna Hackett, are you able to remain? Yes, I, I think, let's do it. Okay, well, it, it's a question that uh, you may want to talk around rather than if you don't have the figures, but it's from Elizabeth Mystery, who's a freelance journalist. And she asks, are, are there figures for the number of unpaid carers who caught COVID and died? who caught COVID and survived or who have long COVID? Good questions. Whether we have the data or not is, uh, why, we, why we wouldn't have the data is, is a good question. <laughs> uh, yes, thank you very much for that question. <laughs> I, don't, I certainly don't have the answer at my fingertips. I think what would help is if uh, someone could direct us to a repository of information on that topic so that we can give an answer unless somebody here now has got the ready answer. I would just say that the the, the numbers of deaths, sorry, Tolu. No, yes. I, don't have, I, I don't have an answer, but I just wanted to um, use the, the question to highlight an important point, which is that of unpaid carers, right? So this is just a, an incredible um, contribution to the to the health and care of the population that is often unrecognized, that is often disproportionately born. Um, uh, there's a gender inequality there. And so it, it, as part of it, we're thinking about looking ahead, you know, the, 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 the things that we noticed early on in the pandemic was the importance of community action, of, 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 of community support. And it brought to light the importance of this that kind of unpaid care work that essentially people took for their neighbours, for their, for their friends and their broader community in the short term. We valued it then. Um, and I just do want to highlight that I suspect that it would be a difficult stat to come up with in part because that um, contribution to society is largely invisible. Um, but it was, it's, it's actually a kind of key worker um, uh, status in society. And we saw that, um, we saw that in the pandemic and, and they've been playing that role. A lot of people have been playing that role before the pandemic. Is, uh, are there any other contributions to answer this question or at least provide an avenue towards its solution? The only other thing uh, uh, that's of interest is at a time last autumn when about 35,000 people had died in care homes, there were an additional eight or 9,000 people who had died in their own home. Uh, and, and that's a reflection of uh, perhaps an, un an uncharted area of risk, both for those who've, who needed care and those who were giving care. And that's available in uh, ONS statistics and um, the Nuffield and other sources. Well, thank you very much. I think uh, given that answer, if I uh, may preempt anything else and just 
bring matters slowly to a close. I'd like to thank the uh, campaign to keep the public health, ANHS public itself, uh, for their support throughout. It's been an amazing amount of work that's gone into this behind the scenes, uh, as well as in front of the scenes. I'd like to thank very much fellow panellists who've been extremely cooperative and extremely informative all the way through. And it goes without saying that the findings that are being presented today individually have the backing of the whole panel. There was no dissent in relation to that. And obviously to thank uh, Lorna Hackett for her services to the inquiry. So on that note, um, we will meet again because there's a full report coming, but it will be the autumn, I think, before it's ready. So may I hand you back to... Sullivan, please. Well, thank you very much to Michael and to the panel and to Lorna, the council for the inquiry, and thank you to the, the, the media and members of the public who've attended. Uh, very, very quickly, um, I've put in the chat Samantha Wathan, our press officer, and her contact, and that's, there's, uh, there's also links to the uh, report that, that uh, we've referred to in the chat room. It's on the website, People's COVID Inquiry. It's, um, access to it is on the homepage. And uh, please keep with us as we uh, prepare for off our published findings in the autumn, as Michael has, has referred to. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you.